Okay, tonight we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3. As we go forward in the book of Nehemiah, we are in that book where the Jews have been back in the promised land since captivity for well over 100 years. Zerubbabel led a group back from the Medo-Persian Empire to rebuild the temple. They got it done. And then Ezra came after that and brought his people with them. And now about 15 years after Ezra's return to the promised land, now comes Nehemiah coming from the region of Iran. And he has come. He is the king's cupbearer, which means he has great authority with the king of Medo-Persia. And he's used his position and power to intervene and intercede for his people, the nation of Israel, those captives that had returned, plus maybe the remnants of the people, not maybe, but the remnants of the people who had never left, the poor people that had stayed in the land after Nebuchadnezzar had just obliterated uh, Judah and the southern kingdom more than a century prior. So we left off that Nehemiah had gone back, God had given him favor, and he's back there. Now he's going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and a city without a walls, particularly in that world, is very exposed, and the wall represents strength and protection. And so that's, that was a mark of moving on from being a village and really getting somewhere is having walls protect you. And the, that capital city of the Jews had not had a wall. And during that 100-plus years, there had been a few attempts to rebuild the wall, and the political forces that opposed them stopped it from happening. But Nehemiah is going there now with a burden in his heart and a calling from God to get the job done, to build the wall, to strengthen the people militarily and politically with their wall, to protect them from their avowed enemies, and then to build up the people spiritually and practically to be right with the Lord and to stand strong with the Lord. And that's what the book is really all about. So last week we left off where in the middle of the night he went about and searched out the city of Jerusalem, saw what needed to be done, kept the matter to himself, and then he presented to the leaders, hey, this is the vision, this is the plan, let's do it. And it says the people said, let's do it. Let's build this wall. No matter what the cost, no matter what's against us, Let's do it. Let's get it going. And God will prosper us. So chapter 3, verse 1 comes forward with this, and we read this. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built it as far as the Tower of a Hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the Tower of Hananel. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri built. Also the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with bolts and bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Kaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshalom, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshizabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoatites made repairs. But their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. Moreover, Jehoadiah, the son of Passa, and Mashalom, the son of Besodiah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with bolts and bars. And next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon, Mizpah, repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. Next to him, Bezuziel, the son of Harahiah, one of the goldsmiths made repairs. Also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers made repairs, and they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. 
And next to them, Raphaiah, the son of Hur, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Haramoth, made repairs in front of his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashab, Aniah, made repairs. Malkijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pahath, Moab, repaired another section, as well as the Tower of the Ovens. And next to him was Shalom, the son of Halohesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. There are over 50 names listed in this chapter of men who were leading the repairs on the wall. It's a large area. You know, it's, the circumference is, you know, miles. And if you read between the lines, we realize they focused on the gates first. So they started with the gates. So they, would, they fortified the gates and then began to build the walls around the gates. So you identify your gates, your doors, and then they began to build around it. That was the strategy, the construction plan of action that they had for building the walls. And in these first 12 verses, we see this pattern that they were repairing things, they were consecrating things. It was a spiritual, it was a practical work, but it definitely was a spiritual work. They certainly saw it that way. And they're, they're building the wall, but in a lot of ways, they're actually rebuilding the wall that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar over 100 years prior. So we do see the word, they made repair, they consecrated, they laid the beams, the gate, and they repaired this house and this residence and this thing and that thing. But in this first part of this chapter, there's a couple things we're going to look at that get our attention as to factors with the people involved with building the wall. The first one is Eliashib, the high priest. It is very refreshing to see that the high priest himself is the first name listed as doing the work. This is construction work. This is manual labor work. And it's just really cool that this high priest is front and center. Of course, by the time Jesus came, the high priest's office was a political office, a spiritual, more political than not, a financial office with power. And it's just nice to see here, it's refreshing to see spiritual leadership at the highest level, the person that really represents the relationship and the mediator with God for his people out there leading the way, doing the work. It just reminds us how important spiritual leadership is in all walks of life. Spiritual leadership, of course, is extremely important in the marriage, that the husband can be a strong spiritual leader and earn the trust of his wife and grant her security and blessing. I was watching a show recently where this man said, I, I have a purpose because I have someone to protect. And he was talking about a woman he was in love with. I thought, that's a really good line. It made me think for a moment, like, you know, really, like, I think of loving my wife. I think of co-laboring with my wife. I think of riding electric bikes with my wife and laughing and enjoying things and sushi with my wife. But I, I don't really, I hadn't really thought so much about, like, protecting my wife. So that, that really got my attention. Like, no, I, I protect my wife. That's one of, like, I'm a... I'm the spirit, I spiritually protect my wife. Like I should be perpetually thinking about how she's thinking and what's going on in her world and how to pray for her and how to intercede for her. That's spiritual leadership in the marriage coming from the husband. And collectively, parents have that type of leadership or should for their children. It's been so wonderful to see my son in law, Nate, and my oldest daughter, Hannah, celebrate their first child. Little Louise is two weeks old now. 
And in the family feed, it's like our own little like private social media feed, right? Everyone's sharing photos. And, and I see pictures of Nate with his little baby girl. And I think how different his world is now. Today's his first day going back to work. He had the two weeks off, you know, and, and off he went. And Grandma Jen's right down the street helping out Hannah now and baby Luis. And there they are, you know, Jenny George, Hannah Baran Gallagher, and now Luis Gallagher. Lord willing, a different last name at some point down the road, give enough time in the journey. And I thought, looking at these photos, how different it was for me and Jennifer when we had our first child, Hannah, and you have children, you know. And just the responsibility, like I remember when we brought Hannah home, it was like, well, can we call the nurse? Like, like you, no, you have this baby 24-7. This is, this is the real deal. There's no battery pack. Like, this is the way it works. And I, you can see Nate and Hannah's like, there they are. The two, two firstborns from their family, they got order and structure. She lays down at this time. She gets fed at this time. Like, they're, you know. You can do that with the first kids. After a while, though, when you get three or four, it's just a free-for-all. You know that, right? But uh, it's just... But I think of Nate and Hannah and, like, what tremendous spiritual leaders they'll be for their daughter. And as I mentioned, Luis's all four of her grandparents are pastoral background. Nate's dad and pastor for over 25, over 40 years. He was Pastor Chuck's youth pastor. And then... Christy, she's the pastor's wife all those years. And then here's Joe, Papa Joe, WG, Calvary. And then Jen, pastor's wife for 35 years. No pressure, Luis. But we'd like to keep that spiritual leadership strong in leading her and protecting her and praying for her and training her up. Spiritual leadership is super important. And we're servant leaders. In, in a marriage and in, in our home with our children. We need to be strong spiritual leaders with our children, young ones or adults. I don't know about you, but many of you have, I know that many of you have older adult kids and you just so value when they call you and make time for you. Like Timmy randomly showed up today with his dog and came through the house. I'm like, I just, I was almost done reading Matthew. I'm like, I can finish Matthew later, but Timmy's here now. Do you parents know what I'm talking about? Like, the, the, that's it. You just, it's a hospital. You just went to the front of the line because we just want to, we want to see them be fruitful with the Lord. We want to have that relationship. want to be spiritual leaders for our kids, young and old alike, consistent. In the church, we want to be strong spiritual leaders. We want our pastors and deacons to be strong spiritual leaders, the pastor deacon wives, our security team, our serving team like Dean and Haley and all of your children's ministry. We want, we want strong spiritual leaders leading and teaching your children, leading the women's ministry and the men's ministry. We want to lead from the front and be servant leaders. So think about where God's put you and however you lead, if whatever your job is and whoever you can have an influence on. Eli- Eliashib reminds us that no matter how high we go up, we always bow the knee as a servant of all like King Jesus and we lead spiritually through humility and service and consecration. Because we've got to consecrate ourselves before we consecrate the wood beams for the city gates, right? It doesn't do any good to consecrate the wood and the rocks if you're not consecrated. Eliashib was consecrated. These Torkites, these nobles who didn't do the work, they get our attention. They're not addressed by individual names, but in this list of 50-plus people doing the work, they're just listed that they wouldn't do the work. 
And I think it's just there, like a Holy Spirit reminder that some people just aren't going to do the work no matter what the opportunities are. But what I really thought about in this one is, is how they would have felt when the work was almost done. You missed your opportunity. And every time they would have gone to Jerusalem for the rest of their lives, walking through the gates, their conscience working against them, that they didn't, they didn't take part in the work. They didn't lift one rock. They had nothing to do with it. It was a lost opportunity. They were above it, I suppose, in their own mind. And maybe they never even felt conviction over it. I just thought, as hard as ministry is sometimes and doing hard work is sometimes, the alternative is just to not do it and miss out on it. And it's a chapter of people that did great things and are part of something great. I've been to Jerusalem, and if you've been to Jerusalem, you've seen the wall of Nehemiah. I saw it in 1992. I'm like, that's Nehemiah's wall. It didn't get more real than that. That's Nehemiah's wall. And these guys are in God's word as a group of people who just saw themselves above it. Too bad. Don't miss out on the work of the Lord. That's, don't, don't, don't miss out on it. Don't, don't miss out, man. If you got the opportunity and be part of building the kingdom of God, something special. It took about 60 days. It was a 60-day 60 60 opportunity. Hmm. Must have been so hard for them to watch the wall be built and not want to maybe at some point go like, I should be lifting up rocks or something. Like, how could you just miss it all? But evidently they did. Then we also see in verse 12, is Shalom and his daughters doing the work together. This is beautiful. And having just talked about wives and parents and husbands, it's a reminder that we always, we just want our children to be a part of the work, whatever it's like. Now, adult children have more choices to do or not do or be a part of the work. And they, they can say, well, you know, and they can say the things they say, but they can't stop you from praying for them, right? Doesn't every parent of adults know that in this room right now? Your, your kids can never stop you from praying for them, for them and the will of God upon their lives. But isn't it beautiful that he's, he's a leader, a major leader, and his daughter's out there doing the work with him? It's just, you can't go back and redo it. And you, you people with younger kids, you want to you have your kids involved in the ministry. That's what we did. We always had our kids involved in the ministry. And when they're older, if they want to be involved in the ministry, you want to have them involved in the ministry. If they want to go to men's conference, take them to a men's conference, you know? It's, like, it's just so special when you're serving the Lord like that when they're younger and then hopefully when they're older. And if your adult kids don't go for it, maybe your grandkids will. However you can... However, you can bring the kingdom into the minds of young, younger people. But there's just something beautiful that ministry isn't apart from the family. Ministry is with the family. And the home is consecrated and belongs to the Lord. It's like a little church. And it just makes me happy that he's there building the wall. And there's the daughters right there with him. That's awesome. It's inspiring. And I just think back and when my kids were younger, I'm so glad I took them to the youth camps and the youth conferences and they hung out with Jeremy Camp and Phil Wickham and all these people and teenage Joe Henschel and they carried stuff, they unpacked stuff, they worked the merch table, they were part of the prayer teams at Anaheim. I'm just so glad that uh, it's not ministry or your children. Your children are your ministry and they go together. Jesus never... When you're, when you're parenting kids, when they're younger, he's for that. He says, let the little children come to me and the junior hires and the high schoolers and keep praying for them even when they're adults. 
Verse 13. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanoa repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuge gate. That's multiple football fields. Uh, remember, cubits a foot and a half, essentially. Malkijah, the son of Rechab, leader of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the refuge gate, and he built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Shalom, the son of Kol Hose, the leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, repaired the wall of the pool of Shelah by the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, leader of half the district of Beth Zur, made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs of David and the man-made pool and as far as the house of the mighty. After him, the Levites, under Rehum, the son of Bani, made repairs. Next to him, Hashabiah, leader of half the district of Kaliah, made repairs for his district. After him, the brethren, under Bevi, the son of Henadad, leader of half the district of Kaliah, made repairs. And next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the leader of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent to the army of the butchers. After him, Barak, the son of Zabai, carefully, re carefully repaired the other section from the buttress of the door of the house of, of Elishabib, the high priest. Elishab, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Koz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Elishab to the house of uh, Elishab. And after him, the priest, the men of the plain, made repairs. After him, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Masaiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs by his house. After him, Binuai, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress, even as far as the corner. Palel, the son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the buttress on the tower, which projects from the king's upper house that was by the court of the prison. After him, Padiah, the son of Parash, made repairs. Moreover, the Neathim who dwelt in Ophel made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate toward the east and on the projecting tower. And after them, the Toakites repaired another section next to the great project tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. Beyond the horse gate, the priest made repairs each in front of his own house. After them, Zadok, the house of Emer, made repairs in front of his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. And after him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Ashilam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs in front of his dwelling. And after him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of Nethininim and of the merchants in front of Mithkad gate, and as far as upper room at the corner. And between the upper room at the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmith and merchants made repairs. So as I said, there's over 50 names. It's almost like Chronicles here. There's over 50 names listed with people who did their work and where they worked. And uh, there's a consistency, of course. They're repairing, they're hanging the gates, and, and that sort of a thing. But what you see more of here in the latter part of this chapter is this phrase in front of their house. So no less than five times that people are literally building the wall, fortifying the wall for their, in front of their house. In other words, to their own benefit. Now, obviously, contextually, historically, they're a people group, they're a society, they have enemies, and they're building a literal wall to protect their, their property from harm's way. They're not building a wall to just have uh, people
peace and quiet from their neighbors or something like that. They're building a wall because outside these walls are people that want to destroy them. The next chapter is the adversaries who cease to acknowledge their existence or their right to exist, and so they're building a wall. The motivation's high. And when we talk about this, of course, sowing and reaping in the universe and how God set up the law of sowing and reaping and what you put out is what you get back. But doesn't it make sense just to reflect for a moment how it's always to your own advantage to strengthen and fortify your own family and your own home? To be in prayer, to prioritize spiritual things, to have the word of God rule your heart, your house. Like I said, consecrate you, then you can consecrate your house. I mean, doesn't it make sense that you would, I mean, isn't it in your own best interest to fortify the wall, a firewall to protect your family from harm's way, whether it's a physical wall or financial wall or a spiritual wall or all the above? It totally makes sense. So I tell all these young people that seem to be coming in my life these days, they'll call me and ask me, like, what do you think about this? And we got a little bit of money saved up or, you know, the Lord might be leading us this way. And, and, I, and I, I tell them this, it's kind of my go-to thing. Like, no one is going to look out for your marriage as much as you are. And no one's going to look out for your finances as much as you do. No one that hires you is going to look out for your finances. That they, they might have good interest, but in the end, at least in my experiences, no one looks out for your finances. No one's going to come home and show Joey Brand how to manage his finances to say, hey, you should be tithing. You should be saving 10% every month. You know, you should be doing this. You know, no one said you should watch this Dave Ramsey video or you should watch, you know, read this book. No one ever said that. And I wish now in hindsight someone would have because I've read quite a few books in the last few years on just having the right perspective and financial management. I'm like, why did I wait till I was 60 to read these books with such good insight that is biblical? Like, you know, like my parents never said it. No one who ever hired me in the church or out of the church ever said, hey, you might consider reading, you know, Richest Man in Babylon or something like that. You know, you should consider reading this book. You might learn some good financial principles that are biblically supported. No one ever said that. No one's going to look out for your marriage, your walk, your children, your career, your education, your self-education, which is generally more important than formal education, by the way. History shows that. And no one's going to look out for your finances, apart from, obviously the Lord's over all that, more than you. And no one's going to look out for your asset wealth more than you. It is to your own best interest to build the wall outside your backyard. Because if you don't build it, the tokahites, the cherubals from the kohatites are not going to come build it for you, are they? If you're counting on the tokahite, you know, those guys, those, those leaders that come lift the shoulder, they don't do that. People hire you for a service. People might want to encourage you, but in the end, man, I've been married 35 years and I've been in ministry 35 years. No one is going to build that wall in your backyard for you. You need to accept responsibility, male or female, married or single or whatever. No one's going to go to the doctor for you. <laughs> you older people appreciate this. Uh, my contractor, I've been talking about him a lot. He's the funnest guy to hang out with. He, he, Somehow, this you younger people are like, who even talks about stuff like this? Well, when you're over 50, you talk about colonoscopies, okay? So I'm like, oh, I do the Kaiser thing. I send in what Kaiser wants every week let, or every year. Let the reader understand. And he's like, no, you need to get a colonoscopy. I'm like, I don't want to get a colonoscopy. <laughs> let the reader understand. And he's like, well, would you regret not getting one? 
Because I just watched my wife go through, you know, get a colonoscopy. You, know, you fast for like three days. It's not pleasant. And they tell you you should be doing this. Like, he's like, you never, I'm, no, I never had. He's like, well, you're the one that's got to do it for you. So if you've got colon cancer in two years, you don't get to see your grandkids when they're 10, who's that going to be on you? Right. So no one's going to do the medical checkup for me than me. Do you understand what I'm saying? Young or old, you've got to build your wall for your personal physical health, your spiritual calling, your marriage, your finances, your asset wealth. If you don't build that wall, it's in your own best interest to build that wall outside your backyard. Spiritually, practically, financially, all of it. If you don't get your emotions under control, who's going to get your emotions under control for you? Do you want to be a hothead your whole life? Do you want to be like a mopey, unhappy person your whole life? You have to build the wall. If I've learned anything since 2018, when I retired from coaching surfing, it all came to a clear view in my late 50s. Why have I never thought about any of this stuff? And suddenly, here in my late 50s, going like, I better get my hustle on. So all you people younger than me and all you people older than me, you have to build your wall. You have to build your wall. You have to do it. No less than five of these people understood the times and season they were in, and they got out there, and they built that wall. And they didn't expect their neighbor to build that wall for them. They accepted the self-determination and self-responsibility to build that wall and look out for their own interests as led by the Lord in their personal relationships with the Lord. And if your daughters do it with you, even better. But don't expect your daughters to do it on their own. Lead the way. Now we read on. So the wall's built. Awesome. They, 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 each in front of his own house, verse 28 and other verses. Verse chapter 4. But it so happened when Samballot heard that they were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria. And he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside himself, and he said, whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So it starts with mocking and taunting. Verse 4, Nehemiah's response. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So, prayer done, verse 6. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now it happened when Sembalat, Tobiah, the Arab, and the, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashadites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored, and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they became very angry, and all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing, and there's so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. And our adversary said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will, come, they will be upon us. Therefore... 
I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall, at the openings. I set the people according to their families, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, the leaders, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Wow, what a verse. What a verse. As a human being, you can't go through life without having people taunt you, choose to be your adversary, and try and undermine things that are going on in your life. That just, that's a human experience. But as we just saw on Saturday night with the Beatitudes, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, and blessed are you when you're persecuted for Jesus' namesake. There's a blessing in persecution, and as we know, the moment you start to go forward with Jesus, you're going against the kingdom of darkness, and there is opposition, spiritual, and it will manifest itself, and it will manifest itself with people, circumstances, and strange events coming against you. Affliction of your body, affliction of your loved ones, if people like Job went through, people just trying to steal your wealth. It's, we're trying to live a righteous life in humility, by faith, in a world at war with God and one another. It's the human experience. That's, that's reality of life. And this battle, this is war. Physically, literally, socially, nationally, for Israel, this is war in this passage that we just read. But it is a spiritual battle. The battle is the Lord's. That's what we've seen time and time again in historical books. We're almost done with the historical books. It's been four years since Genesis began. The battle, every physical earthly battle against God's people of faith is a spiritual battle, first and foremost. And the physical is just manifesting what's really going on behind it in the spiritual, even like current events. So here, you know, you've, you, the chapter 3 was, oh, you're out there with your kids, you're out there with your neighbors, you're building the wall, everyone's excited, and they, they're full of faith, and they're getting after it. And then chapter 4, it's like, wow, here we go. Here comes the enemy, the adversaries. They come, they're furious, they're indignant, and they're mocking the Jews. Now, contextually for Israel, this is just the way it's always been. There, there can't be any peace accords in 2023 for Israel. And the reason being, all these 20-plus nations that hate their guts refuse to recognize their right to exist. <laughs> the only peace that their enemies want them is every Jew exterminated from planet Earth, just like the Holocaust in Auschwitz and the other places. That's why Israel can never, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. If you and I want to have peace, but you don't recognize my right to exist and you want to kill me, we can't really have peace, can we? That's not how you live a civil life in your neighborhood. It doesn't work that way. And that's the challenge for Israel. So why the hatred always toward Israel? Because of the people of covenant that God set apart. He gave them his word, and he gave them his son. And he's promised an unfinished work through them in the end game. They may, not, they may not be under the blood of Jesus like the church is, but we know from the Old Testament, God's not done with Israel. And the fact that you've ever read on the history of how Israel was rebirthed as a nation, it was against all odds. 
The day the UN gave them their national identity was the day they were attacked by 20 nations. They had only firearms they had, they had hidden because under British mandate, it was capital punishment to be caught with a firearm. So when the British were controlling Palestine, the land of Palestine, if a Jewish, anyone like Ben Garan, any of those guys, those initial heroes of the state of Israel, if they were caught with a gun, it was capital punishment by the British, the British controlled mandate post-World War II. That's how their nation began, and they fought off. The Six-Day War was a preemptive strike of Israel against, they're about to be attacked by all their enemies again on the Six-Day War, and they took the preemptive strike against Egypt, then Jordan, and then Syria. First two days, days three and four, days five and six. Egypt, Jordan, Syria. And it's a tremendous victory. And the land that God promised them was restored to them. And then the Yom Kippur War, they were almost wiped out in 73. It caught them off guard, just like what happened this week. Israel, going right from the very beginning, has always had vicious enemies that refuse to recognize their right to exist as the descendants of Abraham. And you can't reason with anybody who thinks other than that. Thus, we have what we got going on right now. Just know that God always says, whoever blesses Israel, I will bless. That's the promise. But this is what they've dealt with their entire existence. Stuff like this. This is what... I've done extensive history on the Jewish people. Extensive history. Not just from AD 70 up to that time with the destruction of Jerusalem and Titus's 12th Roman legion. But in the 2000 year period before they became, they began to go back in the early 1900s. And it's unbelievable the spiritual battle behind these people and what they went through, particularly during the Ottoman Empire, like the 1500s up until World War I, how they're treated by everybody. And in the end, we know the whole world's gonna come against Israel, the whole world. That is the end game. I think most of you know that. The world as we know it will come to an end in northern Israel, in the Valley of Megiddo. And the nations of the world, including many of those ones trying to wipe them out right now, this very moment before sunrise. Those nations, these nations that make up the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and all the rest of a lot of them, including Iran, they're all in the Bible. And they all come against Israel in the end game. And they all end up in the Valley of Megiddo. And they look like they're going to win. And Christ comes back and intervenes. And the kingdom is established. That's why I said earlier Chuck would have been very excited. Not excited over tragedy, but excited for the return of the king. Isn't it nice a guy, he says, I tell you the future before it happens, so what happens, you know that I told you. God literally does say, I told you so. So put me to the test and, I, and I'll show you. Jesus is always coming back for you and me and we should be excited to go to eternity. We should be passionate to fulfill our time and excited to go to eternity in glory. I am excited to go to eternity. I really am. I, I saw a clip today from a Jewish woman saying, oh, I'm ready for eternity. I'm not leaving my house. I'm ready. That's how I feel about eternity. Eternity is glory. Eternity is the payoff. But there's work to be done until the payoff. And the spiritual battle that has always come against Israel as a nation and continues to come against the Jewish people 
God intervenes time and time again. That same spiritual battle comes against the church. And you can say 9-11 and all these other terrorist acts against America are related to the fact that we have stood with Israel. Sam Bout, Tobiah, these guys, Herod the Great, they've always been around, and they're going to always be around as long as time, space, and matter is free will and self-determination. So we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said in Matthew 24, uh, don't be moved when you see this, that, and everything else. These, these, things, these things must happen, but this gospel must be preached to every nation. And that's where we fit in. Yeah, pestilence. War, rumors of war, kingdom against kingdom, nation against nation. It's all there and all focuses on Israel. This story here from 2,500 years ago is still going on right now on planet Earth, and we know that. But we're the church, and we've been doing what we're called to do. In that whole equation of Matthew 24, this gospel must be preached. And what have we been doing as a church for 19 years? We've been preaching the gospel and sowing the great seed of the Great Commission. Yeah, that's who we are. We're like, you know, so whether we're missionaries in Israel, because we have supported missionaries in Israel, or missionaries around the world, we're the church. Our job, whether it's Brazil, Russia, China, or India, is to get the Great Commission out there, the gospel message. But in the meantime, we got to deal with these kind of people. They come against you at work. They come against your marriage. They come against you in your neighborhood. They come against your church. All over the world, these kind of people, uh, Sambal, Tobiah, these guys exist. First they taunt you, and then when they see you prospering and getting stronger, then they attack you. See, it's a spiritual battle. Yes, it's the threats, it's the adversary creating confusion, trying to create discord, disunity, and discouragement. But in the midst of all this, contextually, and all this today, planet Earth, we're the church. And ours is the Great Commission. See, we never get confused over what what we're called to do. We're the church. We're the voice of Jesus. We're the hands of Jesus. And we're the power of Jesus for all eternity until he comes back. I wish I could tell you there's no Sam Ballots and Tobias in your tomorrow. But there are. They were in my yesterday. They're in my today. And they'll be in my tomorrow. And when I go to glory, I go to glory, and they're not going where I'm going, nor where you're going. So we need to fight the good fight. And we, need, we, not, we can't let mockings and adversaries and their plots and their rumors and, and conspiracies cause us to fear. We can't be moved, whether it's government-sanctioned or just thugs or just the devil messing with your mind. We can't be moved by the adversaries. We need to be like what Nehemiah said here. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And we fight with spiritual weapons. We fight with prayer. We fight with humility. And we fight with love. What unusual weapons the Lord has given us, right? The sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, feet shod with the gospel of peace having done all stand. And you know, it's funny about the, the battle, we're told to stand. That's what we're always told to do, having done all stand. We just keep standing. Or as the persecuted Chinese church 
has said so often in the last 40 years, we're like bamboo. You cut us down, we just grow back more of us. Because we stand. We stand. We don't have to, we don't take things over. We preach the gospel, we live the gospel, we expand the kingdom. But it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And ultimately we stand. And we fight the good fight. And we stand up for what's right and we fight against evil. And we do so with humility, love, empathy, and firm conviction and great faith in the God who defends his people. Do not be afraid. Remember, the Lord, great and awesome. And fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Paul the Apostle said at the end of his life, I fought the good fight. So body of Christ, we're reminded tonight, keep fighting the good fight with spiritual weapons. Verse 15. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor. The leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at the construction, with the other they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Whatever you hear, whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us, there our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work. Half the men held the spear from daybreak till the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people that each man and his servants stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night, and working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. They were soldiers, in a sense, quite clearly. They're at war, and they knew they had to guard everything. They had to guard the work that was already accomplished. They had to guard the work that was happening, and they had to guard the future of the work as well. And isn't that life with the Lord? That's what ministry, that's what being a disciple of Jesus is. In one hand, you're doing the work of the Lord. You're building up the kingdom. God's using you. You're growing. It's time with the Lord. He's working on your character. You you know, all those things. And you might be serving this way at church or serving that way in the community. And then you're doing all these things. But there's a spiritual battle the whole time. You got to be praying for this thing. You got to be praying for that thing. You got to endure this hardship. You got to persevere through this persecution and this tribulation. That's what life is with the Lord. That's what it means by all things working together for good, being conformed to the image of Jesus. That on one hand, we're building. And when you study anyone that's done anything substantial or great for the body of Christ, on one hand, they built and advanced the kingdom. And on the other hand, they had to fight for everything that was ever done for the glory of Jesus Christ. Had to fight the good fight. That's, I wish all days were happy days, but they're not. Some days are very difficult, and they're oppressive, and they're difficult, and they're discouraging. But we know that this is, these light afflictions are not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us in the throne room of Jesus Christ, our King. Yes, and amen.